uh, the readings from Romans, 12, Romans 5, uh, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But not sin, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one, that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, because much more, will, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass lead to con led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where the sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why don't we pray just before we uh, come back to that passage. Father God, we thank you, as Sally was saying, as we've sung those words, uh, we surely, as we search ourselves, can all know that sense of having been lost, having been blind, and yet in your wonderful mercy and compassion, you having given us sight, and you having come and found us and saved us. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who is rich in love and mercy and grace towards us uh, who in so many different ways don't deserve anything from you but yet because of your loving nature you have chosen uh, to express your love and grace towards us and, and seeing that even in letting go of your own son for us on our behalf uh, Lord as we reflect on that that is that is amazing grace towards us and uh, will forgive us that actually you know we don't spend enough time uh, reflecting upon that I don't think so Lord as we come to your word we ask that you might show us more of your grace again this morning Lord help us give us eyes to see ears to hear Lord hearts that are open to be changed and challenged and transformed reassured by your word so lord we pray that you might do that deep work uh, within us now spirit pray that you might uh, use my words and that you might speak through uh, these verses lord uh, to minister to us uh, we pray amen uh, if you keep the passage there you'll find that uh, really helpful to follow along with just get my notes up here Great. I wonder if you've ever been in an experience where you felt or perhaps you've heard, that's not fair, I didn't do it. If you spend any amount of time with children, uh, th that will happen multiple times sort of in your day, where a child will say, well, that's not fair that I get punished for that because I wasn't the one who did it. Or maybe you've felt that maybe you've at some point carried the can for somebody else for whatever reason or you just happened to be in a group where something happened and you're part of the sort of punishment but you weren't really part of anything going on there are a few things that will sort of get your just innate human judicial sentiment of what is fair what is right going than to feel as though you're in trouble for something you didn't do. 
Last week, we thought about how uh, we became enemies of God because of the failure, uh, because of our failure. And we heard of how actually we are saved while yet enemies. Well, now this week, actually, we hear how we become enemies of God. And the answer perhaps isn't one that we might like to hear. Because on the one hand, Paul has gone to great lengths to evidence to us how we, in our own behavior, have fallen so very far short of God's standards. And yet, Paul's answer here as to how we've become enemies actually doesn't go to what we have done at all. It goes to what somebody else has done. And the idea that Paul is getting across here in this passage this morning that we'll see is that of original sin. There are a few things that will be as offensive in our society and culture and worldview than original sin. The idea that by nature... People are not good. They are not even neutral. They are innately bad. The idea that the essential character of every human needs redeeming. That it is not in and of itself okay. This is a worldview which is completely anathema in our secular culture. And we've seen that recently. You may perhaps have come across the story of a headmistress in London, Catherine Burble Singh, who's in trouble. She's been labelled Britain's strictest head teacher in response to a tweet uh, about original sin. Someone had tweeted, we're all born bad. She wrote, exactly, original sin. Children need to be taught right from wrong and then habituated into choosing good over evil. That requires love and constant correction from all the adults in their lives over years. Moral formation is a good thing. And in response, one person wrote, the MSP Neil Gray, this is the opposite of my worldview. Children are not born bad. Children are born good. And I would suggest trauma, poverty, ACEs, and negative influences of adults are what drive negative behavior into adulthood. We must nurture and protect our children, not stigmatize them from birth. Utterly, utterly naive. In fact, I'd say it's not so much naive. It must be plain pig ignorant. This is someone who has not spent any time around any people thinking seriously. Let me tell you why he's wrong. Here's the most simple and basic reason. How many of you have ever had to teach anyone around you in your life to lie? I have three children. I've never had to have that conversation. I have had thousands of conversations about lowering the volume of their voice to no success. So my ability to teach is very poor. And yet, without having ever uttered a word, my sons innately know how to lie. And part of that is me, right? They have my genes, they have my DNA, absolutely. But part of it is, it's there. It's just there. Utterly, utterly naive. Hannibal Lecter in the film even says this. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. She's trying to find out what happened, what shaped you, what made you this crazed serial killer. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? Am I evil, Officer Starling? Even some of our film writers and authors know that this idea that everybody is innately good is utterly naive. Another respondent to Catherine Burblesing. Raj Unsworth, of, uh, the chair of the Multi-Academy Trust and a campaigner for equality in education, said, children are not born bad. They're a product of their environment. Basic Christian teaching does not teach us children are born bad. And that's simply not true. It is not true at all. We're five chapters into Romans. How can you come away from that thinking in any way, shape, or form that he is right? That Christian teaching doesn't teach that we are bad. We are 
The first three chapters of Romans are utterly depressing when we face the reality of just how broken we are. The bad news about humanity is worse than we ever dared imagine. And yet, there's a good news. It is far greater than we ever dare hope. But you'll never see how great that news is until you finally are honest about who we really are. So John Calvin, perhaps a better place to go to to think about such a matter of theology. One of the greatest Christian minds that's lived explains original sin in this way. He says, original sin then may be defined a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature extending to all the parts of the soul which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God and then produces in us works which in scripture are termed works of the flesh. This corruption is repeatedly designated by Paul by the term sin. To try to put it in a bit more everyday language, you could say four things that he picks up here about this state of original sin. Firstly, it's genetic. It's that you inherit this condition. There's no one who doesn't have it. There's nothing you can do to avoid it. It's genetic. Secondly, it's holistic. It affects every part of you. Every thought, every desire, every affection, everything you love, everything you fear... Everything that motivates you is affected by it. Every action is affected by it. It's genetic, it's holistic. It's about an attitude. You see, there he says it makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God. That is, the fear of offending God, of doing wrong, your conscience is eroded so that you care less and less. And then lastly, it's borne out in actions. It's worked out in things that we do. This is what Paul is going to be going through for us this morning. And yet the good news of it, because this is essentially a hopeful passage, it really is, Paul shows us that we're freed by a better man in Jesus. So I want to show you three things here in this passage. Firstly, Adam was a man like Christ. Secondly, that Jesus was a man unlike Adam. And thirdly, Jesus is a better man. Firstly, look at verse 12 to 14 with me there. And what we see is that Adam is a man like Christ. And the idea that's being put across here is that Abraham was a representative for the whole human race. That Adam made decisions that have had consequences for everybody else, everywhere, and everybody since. It's a bit like we elect members of parliament don't we, as representatives. And they are to serve as our representatives in that chamber. And they are only there, in theory, so long as they hold that sort of responsibility from us that we've given to them by voting for them. And when they vote on matters, they are essentially casting our votes for us by proxy. That's the idea. And the decisions they make, though, go on to affect all of our lives. Whether we agree with those decisions or not, those decisions are made and they affect all of our lives, regardless of whether we would have voted for it or not, our representative has voted in that way. Here, Adam serves as a representative for us. And here, Adam is marked by one particular momentous decision which has changed everything for everybody ever since. Paul says, therefore, verse 12, he's argued that we're saved while enemies in verses 1 to 11. Now he'll show us how we got to that state. Therefore, he says, sin came into the world. You see, sin was not part of God's original plan and creation. He didn't create the world with sin within it. It is, in fact, a subversion, a rebellion against God that has caused that. In fact, we read numerous times as God summarizes his feelings about creation that creation was good and they're very good when humanity was brought into it. The world's brokenness comes from the sin in Genesis 3. As Adam and Eve eat from the fruit that they were forbidden, Desiring to be like God, desiring to be in his place, desiring to make decisions like him, desiring to be in control over their lives. And a curse comes upon 
the earth ever since. Upon humanity, upon human relationships, even the most intimate of relationships, it says that uh, the woman's desire will be for the man and the man will rule over the woman, that even the marriage relationship, in theory, the most intimate of all relationships will have this innate sort of conflict and tension within it. And all other relationships too, that work will be hard, that the earth will fight back against us as we try to uh, do our work. It's a wide-ranging curse that affects both humanity and the creation. Sin came into the world through one man. Uh, COVID is bad for a whole, whole bunch of reasons, but one of the things it's been helpful for is understanding this sort of idea, isn't it? Because now we know entirely how something could come from just one person and spread all the way across the globe and affect everyone. That's what we've seen, isn't it? It started with just one person and that's all it's taken. And if you just pass it on to even just one person, that's enough for it to go everywhere. And it's been a nightmare, hasn't it? Well, sin is like a virus in that way. It begins with one man, but it then goes to everyone all humanity you might be wondering why does Paul just mention Adam here because Eve was there too was she not well Adam was a representative and he'd failed in his responsibility and so he carries the responsibility here certainly in Paul's mind why might this be well we've begun by thinking about original sin and how offensive that is to culture uh, let me now t- tell you perhaps something that might also be in the top three sort of offensive ideas in our culture. And some of you perhaps might not like to hear it, but I think this is what Paul is saying, and it's certainly countercultural. The world says gender is nothing but a societal construct, that there are no substantive differences in gender. Biologically, that is not only unproven, That is demonstrably false. There are many clear psychological and physiological differences between men and women. But here Paul's idea is spiritually that actually there are differences, there are distinctions, that men and women are not the same, of course more similar than different, but we're not identical, we are distinct and yet complementary creatures. And one distinction that Paul certainly believes here we have is that God has given men a role as a priestly representative in their families. Now, it's important that you hear that this is not because men are deemed to be more capable, more valuable, or more important. That is not true. But simply because God has a creative right to do whatever he wants. And so men have a responsibility in the home to represent God to their family and to represent their family before God, just as a priest would represent God to the people and represent the people before God. And see, notice as well again, this is important. This is not about privilege, but responsibility. This is not about talent, but role. This is not about value, but duties. See, good leadership, good headship, even as uh, a man within the home, is humble, not proud. It is to be sacrificial, not self-indulgent. It's to be respectful, not demeaning. It's to be patient, not demanding. It's to be collaborative, not controlling. And it is to be a service, not selfish. That you use your position to love and to serve and to lead and to care for others so that they flourish. So, when Adam and Eve sin, Adam carries the can because he should have stopped it. If he had done his role as priest... He would have protected his wife, Eve, from the serpent. He would have stepped in and he would have corrected the serpent's lies. But as it was, he abdicated his role as priest. He did nothing. He left her vulnerable 
He took a path of least resistance and he gave up the word of God that he was given. Do not eat of this tree for in the day of, that you eat of it, you will surely die. He gave up the word of God for feelings. This feels good. This feels right. This is a path of least resistance. See, what the Bible presents here, I believe, isn't chauvinism, and it's important that there's that very clear distinction that the way in which this is expressed is not chauvinistic, it is not misogynistic. It's not that men are in control and women have no voice and no agency. No, no, not at all. The, the point is simply just that the responsibility here for leadership and spiritual care and direction falls upon the man as, as a responsibility. Again, not a privilege, to exact, but a responsibility from which to serve. And that's why when Paul says to appoint male elders, he always roots it in the creation narrative because it's coming back to this way in which things were made. And so why is just Adam mentioned here and not Eve? Because Paul believes Adam's sin is worse. He should have stepped in. He should have done his job and he didn't. It's more his fault than Eve's. Adam stood in that place for his family and he stood in that place for all of us in fact and he failed and he let sin into the world. And what was their sin? We thought of this a few weeks back but it's worth reminding ourselves. You know God from nothing out of the abundance of his love and his joy and his contentment and peace and fullness created a good world. And God placed humanity on the earth to rule it, to subdue it, to steward it, and to enjoy it, to represent him. And yet, humanity rejected what God had said. God had said, you may surely eat the tree, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And instead they placed faith in what they saw not what God had said. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And Adam should have stepped in. He knew what God had said. He should have got them out of that predicament. But they believed between them that we know better. We know better what is good than God. We know better what is right than him. And we know better what is perfect. And somehow God is holding out on them. That there's something better beyond God. That's always the lie of sin, isn't it? That there's something better beyond what he's given and what he's promised that we need to reach out to grasp hold of. That it isn't enough to be in God's image, which they've been declared to be, both of them together equally, but that we want to be God and so the result is a curse upon the earth and all life upon it. And yet God gives a promise too, doesn't he? That he'll make it right. That one will come, born of woman, who will crush the head of the serpent. That there'll be a redemption. But this was their sin. Sin has come through one man. And death through sin. We see that immediately, that Adam and Eve, though not made to die, and humans were not made to experience death. It's why when we do experience death, and when we do experience the loss of a loved one, it feels wrong. And there's a part of us that's angry. It's actually a good anger, because we weren't made to experience that. There's something within us that cries out that this is wrong, because we weren't made to handle that. We were made to just experience life, and yet death has entered through sin. And it's not just that we do die eventually, is it? It is, to a certain extent, and this is a, you know, slightly morbid, isn't it? But, it? but it's true nonetheless, that all of life, to some extent, is a gradual procession towards death by degrees. Augustine, one of the uh, great Christian thinkers and philosophers, Basically, one of the things he says, and I can only paraphrase it because he's too clever for me, but he essentially says that time is basically the measurement of decay, the measurement of gradually getting towards death. It's a very, very sad uh, way of looking at life, but it, it's true nonetheless. Death has come through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. We've all 
done the same. And so death reigned from Adam to Moses, the point there being the time before the law is given, even over those whose sinning wasn't like the transgression of Adam. See, there's no loophole there for those who haven't yet had the law. There's no loophole because your sin was a bit different to Adam's. We all sin, even if our sin might look a little bit different. You might choose a different poison to me, but it's no different, really. See, Adam was a representative. Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Spoiler, he's going to go on to talk about Jesus now. See, Adam is like Jesus in so much as he represented all humanity. That's the point that Paul is building up. We'll come to the good news in a second. But Adam was a representative. He stood and he acted in our place and he failed for all. And so we're all guilty by our genetic association. We're guilty because of Adam's failure. And yet we also bear that family resemblance because we're like him. We're no better. Adam was a man like Christ. But secondly, Jesus is a man unlike Adam. And here we begin to see a contrast. I did have some slides for this and then I've forgotten them, which is uh, terrible. But, you know, you'll all know that a car isn't a car, right? Two cars aren't the same. They can both be Cars, they can both have four wheels, but they're not the same thing. Would you want a sort of battered old Suzuki like we had that was so bad it had to be scrapped? Or an Aston Martin? A car isn't a car isn't a car, is it? One is better than the other. Not every hotel is the same, is it? You know you, like me, might have had one of those sort of horrific experiences where you turn up at a place and this is not what it looked like on the website. And then you can see those hotels that other people are going into and the sin of sort of jealousy and envy comes in as you think, oh, oh, that I could be in that hotel across the street. A hotel isn't a hotel, isn't a hotel, is it? There's differences. And here is a contrast between Adam and Jesus, two men, but two very, very different men. The free gift, that's Jesus' legacy, isn't like the trespass, that's Adam's legacy. And now there's this kind of contrast in what they've done. One reaches up to the tree to grasp God's power for himself, that's Adam. He grasps up to take what isn't his for his own benefit. And one is nailed to a tree, letting go of the power he has, for us. Jesus is a man unlike Adam. You see, sin is always self-seeking, it's always self-absorbed, it's always self-delighted. It uses, sometimes abuses even, others, because my comfort matters more. Nirvana song on a plane puts this across. It says, finest day I've ever had was when I learned to cry on demand. I love myself better than you. I know it's wrong, but what should I do? Sin always is self-seeking. For if many died, verse 15 tells us, through one man's trespass, and there is a horrific legacy to Adam's sin and failure, isn't there? But listen to this. As bad as that is, the good news is better. If many die through one man's trespass, much more, much more have the grace of God and free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And as bad as the bad news is, and and Paul has really sort of labored that to show us that in real clarity, as bad as that is, much more have the grace and the love of Christ abounded. They're not comparable. Jesus is a far greater man than Adam ever was. And the idea here is about imputation. Uh, Or the word is exactly as it sounds, to input as in like on a ledger, on an account. That on the one hand, we're judged guilty actually before we've ever done anything, simply because we're connected to Adam. 
We have that same failing within us. We have that same sin. And then we go and prove it right by going and doing it ourselves too. But before we've ever done it, we're already guilty because we're connected to our representative. But now, the glorious truth is that there is a double imputation. There is not only the sin of Adam that is within each and every one of us, but there is now through Christ the imputation of his righteousness. Everything that Adam wasn't, everything that Adam should have been, everything that Adam was made to be, and more in Christ is yours. The good news is better than we ever dared hope. See, firstly here, Jesus is a man unlike Adam. The grace from Jesus' work resounds louder than the death that comes from Adam's work. Verse 16, he carries on this thought. The free gift is not, isn't like the result of that one man's sin. It's totally opposite consequences that come out of Adam and Jesus' work. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. There's one side, there's Adam's side there. A judgment that comes from his one trespass and it brings condemnation for us because we can't possibly stand before God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But the free gift, and now it's speaking of Jesus here, the free gift following many trespasses and here's the thing, God's grace here in Christ is uh, abounding so much more because there's condemnation that comes from just one trespass in Adam. But here, Jesus' work and his grace and his righteousness that he gives is able to pay many trespasses, not just of Adam, but of me and you as well. The free gift following many trespasses brings justification. Where before, with just the one trespass and the judgment that comes where I'm condemned because of it, now, after many trespasses, the free gift means I am justified before God. I can stand before him. I need not fear if I'm in Christ. There's the contrast between their works. Jesus is much, much greater. See, on the one hand, we're all by genetics in Adam in his sin as representative imputed to us, and that affects us all and we can't stand before God. And yet, on the other hand, through faith in Christ, we receive justification because his righteousness as our representative is given to us. See, the second thing we can say here is that Jesus is a man unlike Adam. While impart, imputing sorry, uh, Adam's sin uh, as our representative equals condemnation for us, the imputing of Jesus' righteousness means justification. So now Paul sums up this section here, verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the same righteousness that Paul has built up all along. If you can remember back to chapter 1, he begins there, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Why is he so confident? Why does he believe that it's the power of salvation? He explains it by saying the source of that is that for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it's written, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. His idea is that the whole hope of the gospel, the reason that it has the power to save you and to change you, to transform you, to give you eternal destiny, is because in it what it does is gives you the righteousness of God. And then he's built up why we need that from verse 118 onwards, saying, For the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And he's built it up and shown you all the different ways he may do it. He may do it by sort of outward, obvious, rebellious kind of sins. You might do it through a sort of false, deluded moralism. You might do it through a sort of self-righteousness. It doesn't matter how you do it. You wind up in that position. And then, 320... He gets to a place of saying, why has God done this? He's done this to shut the mouths of all humans. Verse 21, but now, 
The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Righteousness of Christ. Righteousness of Christ brings life over death. Though there's extensive effects of Adam's sin, Jesus' action brings much, much greater effects through his righteousness. Adam was a man like Christ. Jesus was a man unlike Adam. But finally, Jesus was a better man. Song by John Mayer called Speak for Me. In a world that's uh, full of brokenness, all of which are sort of our products of our sinful state in Adam, it can be easy to feel alone and discouraged in the world. And so we wonder, will we be able to find someone who can offer us some sort of hope? That's why people attach such hope to political figures and political systems. It's why they also feel such despair when they don't get their way. Or it turns out that their way didn't work as well as they thought. John Mayer sings a bit about some of this. He says, now the cover of a rolling stone ain't the cover of a rolling stone. And the music on my radio ain't supposed to make me feel alone. What a drag to know I have to learn to let it go. Show me something I can be. Play a song that I can sing. Make me feel as I'm free. Someone come speak for me. Now they're celebrating broken things. I don't want a world of broken things. You can tell that something isn't right when all your heroes are in black and white. You know, Jesus comes so that we might be able to quit celebrating broken things and see things remade, restored, and renewed. Jesus is a better man. Paul moves on now with this therefore here, and he's entering the final part of his argument here, and it is that Jesus is a better man. He's a better representative than Adam ever was for us. As one trespass, or you'll see perhaps a footnote in your Bible there that says that it could be translated as the trespass of one. And again, it's really emphasizing this contrast of one man as a representative Adam and another man as a representative Jesus. As the trespass of one led to condemnation for all, and there's another contrast that he's making, one standing in place of all that leads to condemnation. So one righteous act, and again, it could be translated the righteous act of one, leads to justification for all. See, if you want the righteousness of God in Christ, which you do, because that is the thing that saves, it's not the strength and the quality of your faith, it's the thing that your faith is placed in, it's the work of Jesus to gift you his righteousness, that's the source of your faith. That's why, actually, when you have a bad week or a bad day, actually, hopefully, you know, if your eyes are fixed on Christ, you don't have to be despondent in that moment. You don't have to be constantly up and down with that feeling as though, oh no, I'm not doing so well. Now I can't be doing so well with God. Well, no, your your faith is in a finished work of Jesus. So that actually you can always be confident. You can always be assured. You can always feel accepted. If you want that righteousness of God in Christ, you have to also accept that you're guilty in Adam. That there's that double imputation. See, Adam's sin here, firstly, explains why our sin is so natural. Why it feels as though it controls us. Why it feels as though it has a sort of power over us. Why it seems to be so deeply rooted at times. And yet, secondly, Jesus' righteousness given to us enables us to be freed. It means the source of our confidence is in his work not the strength of our faith. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, Adam was told, don't eat the fruit. And yet, he doubted God's word. He listened to Satan. He estimated that he knew better, that he knew what was right and what was good. Jesus, on the other hand, in his moment of trial and testing in a garden, asks for a way out. Praise. There's a way that this cup can be taken from me, then do so. But, yet not my will, but yours 
be done. Jesus, in his moment of trial and tempting in the garden where it would have seemed far easier to do anything other than to walk into the cross the next day and to walk into that suffering and abuse and brutal murder, says, yet not my will, but yours be done. He estimates in that moment, my father knows better than me. My father knows what is right. My father knows what is good. I might not be able to see it at this moment. And all that I can really see is the pain that is coming. But I trust that my Father knows best for me. I trust that my Father has my greatest good in mind for me in all of this. I trust that he knows what is right where I'm unsure. Jesus never asks you to do something that he hasn't already done for you. In asking you to trust that your father knows best for you. He's done that too. And Jesus, when he comes to earth, he's still God, but it's not like Superman. It's not like most of the time he's human and some of the times he can switch on the God thing. Oh, it's okay now because I can switch into God mode and now I know everything's okay. He's human all the time. So what it means is he's not Clark Kent, sort of 50% of the time, but just whenever it gets tough, I'll just whip in the phone booth and get on the Lycra suit and I'll be okay. And the whole time he's human as well as God. So it means that he genuinely suffers. He genuinely is, is facing temptation, is facing fear, is facing anxiety, is facing despair. Confusion, not exactly knowing what's to come, not knowing how it's going to work out for him and having to overcome. That is really important because it gives you hope that he will be with you as you face those kind of trials and sufferings where it would be easier to give in, where it would be easier to give up where you don't quite understand where God is in it. He says, not my will, but yours be done. He does everything that Adam should have done, but didn't do. And he does it, not only for him, but for you. The law came in to increase the trespass at all, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. See, the problem with our sin is not that the law is the problem, the law doesn't increase sin because of itself, because it's somehow flawed and failing. It's a good thing. It's given by God. It's not that the law is the problem. It's the reality that the presence and the comprehensiveness of the law, and yet our continued sin, shows how deep sin runs. I've used the example before. It's perhaps mean to him, but it's because I remember it uh, so often. But it's that thing with Aaron with the slide teacher told me not to go on the slide all the children said don't go on the slide I went on the slide the problem isn't the law the problem isn't the command not to but what it does show is that even though you're told even though you know you still do it and yet grace abounded all the more how how is that so what does Paul have in his mind here well I suppose the idea is the higher the bill, the greater the generosity needed to pay it. Generosity is easy when it's a very small amount, isn't it? it? You know, it gets harder when the bill racks up a little bit more, and then you start to think, ooh, this is actually going to pinch <laughs> a little bit more than I thought. The higher the bill, the greater the generosity needed. The more sin to forgive, the more grace seen. As sin reigned in death, that grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. There's a new kingdom, a new reign coming, one marked by death, one marked by eternal life. Completely different in outlook. And all of this, we're told, is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul rightly brings it back to Christ, that everything comes through him Everything leads to him. 
the better man. Pearl Jam song here shows the struggle uh, a woman is having to pluck up the courage uh, to leave a man who's no good for her. And as much as she knows he's no good, she fears she might not find a better man. This is talking to herself. There's no one else who needs to know. She tells herself memories back when she was bold and strong and waiting for the world to come along, swears she knew him. Now she swears he's gone. She lies and says she's in love with him. She can't find a better man. We're all caught up in the mess and the brokenness of the bad decision of a bad man. Jesus is the better man who comes that we may be set free to live life in all the fullness it was intended to be lived. Jesus is a better man than Adam. And so all our hope for freedom from the past, for the moment that we're in, and for the future before us, is in Christ a better man for us. We all find ourselves caught up in the mess of a representative who didn't do his job. And yet, God in his grace sends his son to be a better man for us, that we might inherit all of his grace and life and joy and peace with him because of something someone else has done for us, what we could not do, because we each find, if we search ourselves, that we have the family resemblance, that we still have something of that brokenness within us, something of that inability to really do what God calls us to do, to really live as he calls us to live. And yet our hope is looking to that better man that God has given for us, who has died in our place for us, rather than grasping at a power not his own, has let go of a power that was his own, that we might find life, that we might be saved. Reaching his hands up to be nailed to a tree for us. Instead of Adam, he reached to the tree for himself. We're set free through Christ, through his work for us, through him being a better man. Let me pray and then we'll sing a closing song together. Father, many of these truths are difficult to wrap our minds around. They're difficult to understand. They're difficult to accept in many ways. The idea that we're guilty because of something someone else has done. Even though we know that surely that we're like him, it's hard to think that maybe we are guilty even because of something that we've not done ourselves yet Lord I thank you that in your grace and in your mercy and your kindness and compassion your response has been to give your son to do what Adam did not do to do what he failed to do to do that for us to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We really can't transform ourselves. We can make small changes, but we can't do that work of transformation that only you can do. Father, I thank you that your response to all of our sin and brokenness is to love us, not because of anything we've done, but simply because of who you are. And that you've shown us how much you love us and how you love us by giving your son in our place for us. And Jesus, I thank you that you were a better man, that you were willing to come down to earth to live as one of us, live the life we should have lived and die a death we should have died in our place for us. We thank you that you did that with joy in your heart, hard though it was. And Spirit, we ask for your help. 
Because we know those moments that both Adam and Jesus experience in the garden of temptation, of trial, where it's really easy to doubt and depart from your word for all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of things that are going on within us. It's easier sometimes to, to walk away, to give up. And so, Lord, we need your help for that. And so, Spirit, I pray that you would help give us that confidence and assurance of our standing in you and the confidence and trust in your word, that you are trustworthy, that you come good on your word, that we've no need to doubt you. And Lord, we pray for your help, where each of us, like Adam, are often put in places where we make decisions that don't just affect us, they affect our families, our loved ones, our friends. They affect all sorts of other people too. And so Lord, help us to live in light of the better man, not Adam. And Lord, we thank you for your grace that has reached out to every one of us, including Adam, and redeems us even from the biggest of failings and from our most embarrassing of moments that we, we all wish we could just completely replay and, and redo. But Lord, we thank you that your grace is enough. Your grace is always much more abounding than our sin. And your life is always much, much more abounding for us. We thank you for your goodness to us in the gospel. And Spirit, just ask for your help to trust you, to rely on you, to find assurance in you. And Lord, to encourage one another in these things. To walk alongside one another and encourage and support and remind one another of the truth of who you are and what you've done and who you've made us to be and how you've made us to live. So Spirit, we ask you would do your work for your glory and for our good, we ask. Amen.